Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray that as we open your word, as we look at the words of our Savior, that you will magnify him and his work. You would call those who are lost and wondering to you, and that God, you would accomplish that which you intend. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As I prepared this message and thought about what takes place in this chapter, this part of the narrative, I was just reminded at how many and really all of the leaders and great men of faith had seasons where they struggled through fear and doubt. And if Moses struggled with fear and John the Baptist struggled with doubt, there will be seasons when we probably will as well. And in this passage, Jesus' disciples certainly struggled with fear and doubt. I mean, can you imagine the levels of fear and doubt that existed in their minds and hearts following their last meeting with Jesus in the upper room before he went to the cross? I mean, imagine seeing him go to the garden and then arrested there and then go through a mock trial. And then they saw him flogged and brutally crucified. Their fear and doubt after experiencing those things were real. And it's into their struggle that we will see in this passage that Jesus shows up and he doesn't show up empty-handed. He shows up bringing a gift. It's the gift of shalom. Isn't that a beautiful word? I think it may be the most beautiful word in all of human languages, shalom. But it's not just a beautiful word. It is a significant word word. The simple translation into English is peace, and peace is defined by Merriam-Webster as a state of tranquility or quiet, freedom from civil disturbance, or a state of security. But this word shalom is more multifaceted than that. It's a more significant word. It literally speaks of wholeness and completeness of everything being as it should be. It speaks of human flourishing. It speaks of the many parts being brought into a unity. And today, as we finish this series of our hope through Christ's sacrifice, I want us to see the gift that Christ brought to his followers after his resurrection. We're going to look at this passage that, in my mind, culminates the week of passion that started, if you remember, on Palm Sunday that we celebrated two Sundays ago as Jesus came into Jerusalem with shouts and cries of Hosanna. It reaches crescendo on Resurrection Sunday, that first Easter. But I think it's going to continue in what I'm going to call Confession Sunday, the Sunday that we now are in post-resurrection. So let's look at that from John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says, on the evening of that first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday, this is the first Easter, the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And after he had said this, he noticed this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples, when they saw this, were overjoyed at the seeing of the risen Lord. And Jesus said to them, again, shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas called Didymus, 
one of the 12, was not with the disciples at this Easter day appearance, John tells us. So the other disciples went to him and told him, Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was there. So all 11 were there, minus Judas, of course. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas makes this powerful confession. This week following Easter, this Sunday following Easter, confession Sunday, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's an amazing passage of scripture, isn't it? Here we get a glimpse into two separate occasions that are very similar, but one week apart. The first is Jesus's resurrection on that Sunday, that Easter Sunday, as he appears to the disciples, well, 10 of them anyway. Thomas is not there in Judas, of course. The next that follows right on the heels is his appearance a week later on that next Sunday when Thomas is there and he has earned his nickname, right? Doubting Thomas gets a bad rap, though. We're going to see that today in Scripture. And we're going to call this Confession Sunday, not Doubting Thomas Sunday. Because on these two occasions, we see that Jesus shows up in his grace and he brings a gift You see, first, to his people, Jesus brings the gift of peace, the gift of shalom. I love in Scripture that God is a gift giver, amen? The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Paul writes of Jesus in Ephesians 4 that when he ascended, Jesus gave gifts to men. And here we see him not showing up empty-handed, but as he comes into their presence for the first time, post-resurrection, he brings a gift. What a time it is for his gift. You see, isn't it interesting that the timing of a gift amplifies its greatness? The timing of a gift amplifies its greatness. For example, you don't bring out the big gift on Christmas morning right in between the socks and the Christmas popcorn tin, right? You save it for the end because you know that the timing amplifies the gift, And consider this, someone who is very generous gifts you a new car. That's a pretty incredible gift, isn't it? But what if you have a car that you love and it's just fine in the driveway? It's still a great gift. But imagine you get that same gift on the the day after you've totaled or ruined your car. Does not the gift become more impactful and amplified? Because the timing matters. And in these appearances, the disciples are understandably broken, And in their brokenness, fear and doubt has filled the cracks in their life. And Jesus, whom they believed to be the Messiah, had been killed by the people that they thought he was going to overthrow, and it had been orchestrated by the religious leaders that they knew would now certainly look to silence them. So you can understand their fear, right? We get it. It was a time of great turmoil, and they felt it. But not only fear, doubt had its clutches in them as well, because although they had been 
hearing Jesus in sometimes veiled language, but other times quite clearly that he would be killed and raised again, that had not yet sunk into their hearts and they really had no concept of a Messiah being brutalized. Instead, they had seen the miracle worker seemingly incapable of working a miracle on his own behalf. And so they were disillusioned and they were wondering and doubting, did we get it wrong about Jesus? And so in light of their great need, Jesus' gift is amplified as he shows up on these two occasions. Here again, the gift that he brought in verse 19 first, when it says, Jesus came and stood among them, and what he had was a shalom for them when he saw them. Peace be with you. But Thomas wasn't there to see him and to see the nail scars and the piercing in the side. He wasn't there to hear the shalom. And so for a week, the 10 kept trying to tell Thomas we've seen him. And Thomas then says that very bold Statement that unless I see it myself and touch it myself, then I will not believe. And those are very strong words, aren't they? But I think if we really consider the whole narrative, Thomas is simply giving voice to the same place the disciples were on that first resurrection Sunday. You see, the Gospels of Mark and Luke both tell us very plainly that when the disciples heard that Jesus was risen from Mary, that they did not believe the news. They were in the very same place that Thomas was in. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew where they were. And so he came very intentionally to Thomas, didn't he, on Confession Sunday? He shows up in the very same manner he did, and he goes right to Thomas and did the very same thing he had done a week earlier. He showed them. It's me. I'm here. I'm raised. And we see that in verse 26. When he came and stood among them, the 11 this time, he said again, shalom, peace be with you. I mean, it's amazing to me that Jesus opens both of these appearances with that gift It's a beautiful word, and it's a beautiful gift that he brings. I mean, what is the value of the shalom of God? Could you put a price tag on it? What's the value of the gift of God to a a family that's walking through a significant tragedy? What's the value of God's peace over one of the 600,000 homeless people filling the streets of our nation right now? What would be the value of God's peace to The addict that's trying to figure out a way forward but seems to keep running into a brick wall. What's the value of God's peace for a family in the upheaval of divorce or to 11 Jewish men in this situation who have given their lives and following Jesus and are now filled with disappointment that maybe we've gotten it all wrong and we now have a target on our back thanks to him. If peace were for sale, what would the price tag be? If we really contemplate that, we know that it is absolutely beyond our grasp from our own resources to gain lasting peace. It reminds me of a Nepali riddle that I came across, and it goes something like this. A farmer has his three possessions in life, his goat, his tiger, and a pile of grass, and he comes up on his journey to a narrow bridge to the other side of the river, and it's only wide enough for for him to take one thing at a time. And so he knows, he thinks about it, he knows if he takes the grass first that the tiger will eat the goat. If he takes the tiger first, the the goat's going to eat the grass. And if he takes the goat first, the tiger won't eat the grass. But if he brings the tiger over, the tiger will eat the goat. Or if he brings the grass over, the goat will eat the grass. And he begins to wonder, what am I going to do here? 
And we'll talk about that. There is a solution. We'll look at it in just a moment. But to me, it kind of reminded me of the riddle that we all face. Like, we know that we were made for peace. It's, it's got to be out there, but I don't know how to get there. I don't have the wherewithal to get it. And I look around, and I see that, man, it's not just me, but the world can't find lasting peace. I have a missionary friend of mine from, from back in my time in, in Florida. I love this man. He went to numerous continents. He had come to know Christ in a beautiful and profound way, and it had just sparked a heart for mission. And I was having lunch with him one day. He said, Chris, it's amazing. I've been to three different continents and spent a great amount of time there. And he said, everywhere I've been, although they are all quite different, in every place, people have the exact same need and desires. Two things, they want their family to be okay and they want to live in peace. And yet we look around and don't we live in a world that seems to have enemies on every side that destroy peace and snatch it away when we think we're almost there? And it seems like finding lasting peace is like a riddle that's not solvable. But we see in this passage, that is what Jesus did and that's what he does when he enters into a room. He brings his peace. See, secondly, Jesus' shalom overcomes the greatest enemies of our peace, which is fear and doubt. To me, those are the two greatest enemies that we have to try to find peace in this world. And fear is a very powerful tool. It controls people. Fear is that which ruins our hopes and dreams, and it keeps us from living out the purpose that maybe we envision for our lives, and it kind of blinds us to the opportunities that may just be right there beyond us. And in recent years, we have seen the crippling effect of fear as a nation, as a world, haven't we? We felt its crushing weight. We know how real fear is in the world in which we live. And the disciples needed peace because they felt a real fear for their personal well-being and a real fear that, man, we've missed it. But doubt also is a thief. It robs peace and it makes the path forward look shaky or obscure. And we face many doubts as we walk through this life. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we doubt God, either his existence or whether or not he's faithful to his promises, don't we? Have you been there before? And this type of doubt can come from so many different places. And here's just a, a couple of them. Doubt can come from real questions that arise in our life when we face a significant pain or a significant difficulty. Doubt can come simply from ignorance, like we don't even know what we don't know. Doubt can come from a willful moral choice. When we say, I'm going to do my own thing, I don't believe God, I've got a new design, a new direction, a direction for my life, and I'm going that way, so I doubt if God even knows or has the best in mind for me. Or it can come from a long series of days of making small ungodly choices where we don't entertain God's presence in our life and follow God's word. And it seems like we get further and further away, drifting from the presence of God. And the next thing you know, after living like that, we wake up one morning, look in the mirror. And it's like, I don't think I believe all that stuff anyway. I've known people that have gotten there. Maybe you do as well. But I don't think that's the kind of doubt we see Thomas and the other disciples dealing with. I believe Thomas is expressing a doubt that rises up from a place of great disappointment. Have you been there? You felt like God didn't come through on a promise? You felt like, why me? What am I doing with my life? I think he's experiencing massive religious disappointment. Thomas would not let himself be fooled again. So in his doubt, 
He's like, I am only gonna have that relieved if I see it with my own eyes. He didn't want some gullible faith, and maybe that's a good thing. We have a lot of Christians walking around with a very gullible faith, and Thomas wouldn't be counted in that number. I gotta see this. Do any of those doubts sound familiar? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know if you can keep going. I love what Jesus does in this passage. And as I studied this, it's interesting to me from this text and other gospel accounts, it's interesting that resurrection morning doesn't initially bring peace. Like fear and doubt are still prevailing until Jesus himself shows up in their midst. Like in verse 19, we see that it's on the evening of the first day of the week. The message of his resurrection has been swirling around. The Emmaus disciples know about it. They've heard it, but they don't know what to do with it. And they're all still in fear and doubt. And we see that because they're like behind locked doors because they're fearful. And doubt was there too. Again, Mark and Luke make it very clear that none of the disciples believed those first reports that Jesus was resurrected. We see a picture of men in great turmoil. So Jesus unoffended by that, which is encouraging to me, comes into their midst with a, a gift of real peace that he had purchased by his work on the cross. And some disciples that he loved, that he knew struggled with faith, they didn't deter him from bringing that which he had purchased. You see, thirdly, it's by his wounds that our fear and doubt can be healed. It's by his wounds. You see, 700 years earlier, Isaiah had written of the Messiah these words that had not yet registered in the minds and hearts of the disciples. Isaiah 53 is absolutely an amazing passage. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, including denial and doubt. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was on him, and it's by his wounds that we were healed. And the very first thing Jesus did as he shows up is he shows them the wounds. In both of these instances, he shows up and he says shalom and he then shows them the wounds. I paid the price. And he does the same thing the next time to Thomas. Now the other sin had already seen the wounds and I'm sure they were just as amazed when they saw him again. But he comes directly and specifically and intentionally to Thomas and the first thing he does, knowing where Thomas is in his faith, is he shows him the wounds. It's a fulfillment not only of Isaiah's prophecy and promise, but also what Jesus has said just a few nights before. In John 14, as he met with the disciples in the upper room before leaving with a hymn to go to the garden where he would be arrested, he taught them this and promised this. In 1427, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives, praise God. Don't let your hearts be troubled, don't be afraid. And remember, the moment amplifies the gift. So when Jesus uttered those words in John 14, certainly they were well-received and appreciated by the disciples because they knew things were kind of breaking loose in Jerusalem. And they knew something was, was on the horizon. But how much different did this word of peace sound when they saw the resurrected Jesus in front of them? And what a gift it is that Jesus brought. And what a gift he bought. And what a confirmation of who he really was. You see, a lot of times we look at Isaiah's other prophecy from, not, not his other, he made a whole bunch, but in Isaiah 9 as the Christmas prophecy. But listen to these words in light of what we've just heard of Jesus. Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born. 
Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. And of his government and of his shalom, there will be no end. Jesus had been promised that this is what he would bring, and he delivered on his promise, and this gift is given freely. It's been given to us. It provides us, as the church, our great confession. You see, fourthly, the Messiah's peace provides our greatest confession. And it's the confession that Thomas uttered on that Sunday as he said, my Lord and my God. Those are incredible words from a doubter. My Lord and my God. You see, in light of seeing the the risen Jesus, his fear and his doubt was relieved instantaneously. And his confession is the voice of all those who have met the risen Savior. Those who have seen the nail piercings and those like us who haven't. Whenever our eyes are turned to Jesus in faith and we see that he is the risen one, he is the promised Messiah, and we make our confession, my Lord and my God, the peace of God begins to be a real present gift that God gives us. And this confession that Thomas makes in verse 28 is one of the most clear and one of the most concise declarations of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' identity of anywhere in the New Testament. And it also highlights the beautiful personal relationship that we have whenever we meet the risen Savior. My Lord and my God is a confession. Is that your confession? This confession became the echo of Thomas's life and of the entire early church. You see, Thomas became a a man consumed by the good news that Jesus had made peace between him and God in spite of his shortcomings. And we we could call him Doubting Thomas, but I I think even more fitting is calling him Beautiful Feet Thomas. How do you like that? Because Thomas had those kind of feet that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 52 that says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace who brings good tidings, who proclaims salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see the beautiful feet of the gospel shod with the, with the gospel of peace led Thomas to declare the glory of God even to his own martyrdom. According to church tradition, which is quite extensive, Thomas became one of the first missionaries of the early church, taking the gospel of Christ to the subcontinent of India of all places. Various historical records indicate that he traveled by sea to India in AD 52 and was there martyred and buried after preaching the message of hope in Jesus. As a matter of fact, you can still visit the tomb of St. Thomas in Mylapore, India. And a tradition is observed there by the people that honor Thomas that call him the apostle of India. Isn't that amazing, the change that hope and peace brought into his life? You see, I believe the peace of Christ allowed Thomas to move forward away from his fear and doubt. And I especially have grown to love this passage that I've studied it this week because it, you can see that Jesus orchestrates this appearance to Thomas to meet him in his doubt. He comes to intentionally rescue his child who is on the brink of falling away. And there may be someone in this place who's on the brink of falling away, never to return. May you hear Jesus speak over your life, peace. I am here. I am risen. 
The way has been made. Trust me. Follow me. I am the Lord. I am God. Trust me. Confess me. Jesus met Thomas right where he was, and he looks to say, do the same for you. And when he met him there, he empowered him to be a part of the team that turned the world upside down. And he invites you into that very same mission. So back to the riddle from the beginning. It's, it's all about the sequence of moves, right? See, the farmer figured out, if I, I take the goat across first, the grass will be safe with the tiger. Then I can take the grass across. But instead of leaving the goat with the grass, I'll bring the goat with me. And instead of leaving the goat with the tiger, I'll take the tiger across because the tiger won't eat the grass. Then I'll go back and me and the, the goat will make our way across. It's all in the sequence of moves, right? You see, as I think about what God has done, he worked in a sequence of moves in the life and ministry of Jesus. He had promised who it would be. And he worked in a sequence of moves to to bring him through a virgin, to allow him to live a life that was one of sinless perfection, to become the spotless lamb of God who alone could take away the sin of the world. And he allowed him to proclaim the truth with, with boldness, not worried about his own outcome, but instead understanding his hour was to give his life on the cross. And then he climbed up on the tree of Calvary so all could see. And then he died on Calvary. And then he was raised again on three, after three days. And he proclaimed himself to the world as the one and the only one who could defeat sin and death, thereby bringing peace between us and God. God worked through a sequence of moves, and he did this to solve the riddle that you and I cannot, to where do we find peace? It seems impossible to span the chasm between us and peace, yet Jesus has done that, and he has worked in the midst of a world filled with fear and doubt and trouble of every kind to bring peace to individuals and to empower those individuals to carry the message of peace with boldness. And it's our turn to carry the good news as Thomas did. You see, because of Christ, we have the very same spirit within us that breathed over them that night of his appearance. We have the same Savior and the same Lord over us that commissioned them. He's commissioned us. We have the same word to guide our steps. We have the same world in front of us that needs to be at peace with God. And it's with the peace of God that only he can give that we go in peace to bring the message of peace. Just as Romans 10 says, how then can they, those who are apart from God, call on the one whom they haven't believed? And how can they believe on the one they haven't heard? And how, they can, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Just as those 11 disciples that night were called to rise up and were called to follow him where he leads. Now look around and I see so many doing that in this place. And it's an invitation to all of us to place our trust, confess him as Lord and God, master over our lives, the sovereign over our lives, and to follow him wherever he leads, and he gives us peace along the way. But he also made another beautiful promise before going to Gethsemane. See, fifthly, Jesus is shalom, his peace, which is all over this passage, all over the whole scripture about the Messiah. He also promised his presence in the struggle. And it's really his presence that brings the peace, right? That's what we've seen here on Easter Sunday and Confession Sunday with Thomas. It's the presence of Jesus that brings peace with God and peace to these that are struggling with fear and doubt. 
It's the same for us. That's why he sent the helper, the advocate to live within us, the spirit of Christ to dwell within us, to his, literally his presence with us is what brings peace. And he promised that. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then 40-ish days later, he is about to ascend to the father and he gives the great commission. He says, go to all the world, making disciples. Teach them everything. Preach everything I've commanded to you. And know this, I'm going to be with you always, even till the end of the age. We have his peace from his presence that he promised to us. And he has been good on that promise as well. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, shared about having dinner with a South Korean missionary who had been detained along with 22 other Christian missionaries by the Taliban in Afghanistan in July of 2007. Two of these 23 were actually martyred before the release. The missionary, as he was talking to Francis Chan, told of how difficult those days were, knowing that his own death might be next. But then he shared of an amazing time that these missionaries had the last night that they were together before they were split up and sent to other remote areas. The missionary told them that that night that they each together in that mass surrendered their lives to God's plan, even willing to die if that's what he called them to do. One of them had smuggled in a Bible and he split into 23 different pieces so they could all could have a copy and a portion of God's word. And the missionary said it's in that difficult time that the word of God and the spirit of God sustained them. And then Francis Chan said, the most amazing thing he heard was that the missionary told of conversations that he had had with the other missionaries that were detained. And the question that they talked about was, don't you wish we were still there? Francis Chan said, that's crazy. Where does that come from? The missionary then said, you know what? In that moment, in that time, in that struggle, in that battle, we had a deep, the deepest level of intimacy and the deepest understanding of God's comfort and God's presence than we've ever had. And he said, it's been impossible for us to recapture that away from that place where they had followed God and faithfully. You see, as we follow him, where he leads, he will sustain us and will use our lives in the spread of his fame and the spread of his glory and the spread of the gospel of peace. Now, it may cost us our lives, but in that, he will give us his peace, even in the midst. Even as I say that, I'm reminded of Stephen as he was stoned as the first martyr. As you read that, you, you can't help but see the peace of God that is showered over him as he gives his life. As God begins to do a great work as he scatters his people with the message of the gospel of peace. Do you have that kind of peace today? You have a peace that is lasting because it's a peace that only God has and a peace that only God can give. A peace that comes from forgiveness of your sins before a holy God. A peace that comes whenever you are released from slavery to sin that has you burdened. Do you have that peace? The kind of peace that comes that relieves fear and doubt that once clouded your mind and kept you shackled from the things that you know that God called you to do? Do you have the kind of peace that gives you eternal security? Do you have that kind of peace today? See, peace is available. 
And on this Confession Sunday, have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Have you cried out before him? In a place of broken surrender, your need for what only Jesus has bought for you that you cannot procure for yourself. And before him in humility, have you cried out, my Lord and my God, seeing him with eyes of faith? If that has never happened, maybe today, Confession Sunday is your day. Maybe you've been holding on to your own will and your own way, trying to add a little bit of Jesus to the mix. But even now, you see that it is a surrender to the Lordship, the Master Jesus in your life. You can receive from him a gift that only he can give, that just adding a little bit of Jesus here and there will not give you. And if you have, have you entered into the battle following him where he may lead you? You see, we've been given peace, and it is absolutely priceless. It's the reason that he came, to make peace between you and God. And he didn't want you to keep it hidden under a basket. He wanted you to let it shine for all the lost and broken and the darkness of the world to see. It's the gift of peace that only he can give. And he came to not only give it to us, but to give it through us. And my prayer is that the shalom of God would be what the world hears from us because they hear a lot of things from us. And I don't know that it's always a message of peace with God. Church, that's the best we got because it's the best thing that we have. And it's the thing that the world is lacking and desires and is looking under every rock to find. And it's found lacking apart from having peace with the one who created your soul. And that needs to be the message that we bring with our mouths, but it needs to be also the example we live with our lives. Do we function as the people of peace? Because that's who we are. We're agents of peace. And that's my prayer that we that know Christ can carry that out of this place today. Wherever the Lord takes us, wherever our travels and our occupation or our Wherever we go, that we'd be people of peace in a world that is lacking peace. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And if you've never made the confession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today can be Confession Sunday for you. And you can come to know that peace for yourself that only God can give you by his grace. I'm going to pray that God will give you even the faith right now to see that he's made peace. Open your hands to it as you confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And for those of us that know, and we've been shackled by fear and doubt ourselves and know we're not living the life that God has called us to, to, that we would hear Jesus speak shalom over our lives. Commissioning that he's given us. And we would leave here with literally our doubts and who he is and what he's done by seeing the wounds on his hand and say, he has called me to be his ambassador in the world that I'm about to step into. And he would receive great glory. I think even today, if you were in connect group, and if you aren't, please join a connect group. Join your life with other believers that are walking through this world filled with difficulties and trials. And right now, you guys are beginning, I believe, a time when you're learning how to share your story. That's what we're called to do. People can't argue with peace, real peace in the lives of people. Why don't you come and prepare your heart to share that and then leave here with a message of peace 
sharing it. It's the greatest gift you've received to a world that would love to have what you have. Not because you're anything special, but because God met you right where you were, just like he did Thomas. So in a moment, I'm gonna pray. Whenever I say amen, if you would, please stand. If the Lord is calling you in any way, please respond. There'll be pastors here. There's steps to pray. But even if God's not calling you to respond in a, in a specific way on this Confession Sunday, would you at least join us in prayer? Pray for those, pray for those on, the, on, on the road right next to you. Like now is the time to, to seriously consider this risen Jesus because he desires to move in this place. May he find open hearts to him. Father God, as we have heard your word and considered the sacrifice and the gift of Jesus, God, I pray that you would work in this place. Lord, to the people who have never confessed you right now, they would see for the first time most clearly that you are the risen Savior and the only way to find the peace that their heart so desperately craves is to confess you as their Lord and their Savior. God, would you call the lost to repentance? God, you're beating them right where they are. You don't hate them. You love them. You've come with a message of hope. And Lord, for those of us that know you that have been shackled by our own doubts and fears, would you break those chains? To surrender our lives to you, would you empower us to be the mouthpiece and the lives that you proclaim peace in a way that's unexplainable. God, would you use us, our surrendered lives on this Confession Sunday and beyond to live as people of great hope because of your sacrifice. Lord, right now, I pray that your people would respond, would pray, would do the work of contending God right now in this moment of invitation in Jesus' name, amen. Right now, would you stand? The Lord is... Work in your heart anyway. Please don't hesitate. Respond to him.